if you would, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 9. Revelation 6, 9 to start, and we'll go ahead and read through the rest of chapter 6, which is what we'll be dealing with this morning. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And there are a lot of questions that are raised when we read through this passage. First, the souls. We can't see souls in the physical. So how was John able to see these souls that he speaks of as being under the altar? Obviously, there was some kind of something going on with John. He says that he was in spirit, but we still don't really understand how this is happening and really even what is going on here. But luckily for us, uh, there's a more important question that should be raised. That question is, where do you stand in respect to his wrath? And that's something that we'll look at this morning. I want to reiterate the fact that before Revelation 5.5, Gentile titles of Jesus are used. But from Revelation 5.5 on through the rest of the book, there were only Jewish titles used of him. From that point, the book turns very Jewish for some very good reasons, and we've already begun to see those reasons. Matthew 23, 37 through 39 lays out the purpose, tragedy, and triumph of all of history. Jesus is speaking here. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The purpose, the tragedy, and the triumph of history. The purpose of all history is in the beginning. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Gathering 
her children together. That's the purpose of all of history, bringing Israel to God. The tragedy of all history, but you were not willing. We see over and over in the Old Testament, and then it's explained in the New Testament, Israel was not willing to consistently be gods. They kept falling into idolatry, into other aberrant religious practices. They were not willing to be gathered. But the triumph of all history comes in the last part of uh, that passage. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we see that there is a day when Israel will be gathered together again with Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Hosea 5.15 reads, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And if he is to return to his place, he must have left it to begin with. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. His place is in heaven. So he's talking about when he was incarnated on the earth, he left his place. He left heaven, came to earth, lived his life here, and then he will return again to his place. So currently he's back in heaven with the father. Um, And then they will seek my face when he's no longer here. That is till they acknowledge their offense and seek his face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. What does that sound like? The Jews seeking Christ in affliction. Sounds like the tribulation. There is a time yet future when Israel will be afflicted greatly. And the end of that is their coming to Christ. That's what all this is for. This is a reference to the time of Jacob's trouble, which is another name for the tribulation. Now, before we move into verse 9, I want to recap these four horsemen very quickly. You remember in the beginning of chapter 6, we saw this white horse, the man of sin riding in with a promise of peace and a crown that is given to him. This possibly refers to the political power that he'll be given by the people of the world. Then we come to the red horse, which symbolizes wars. And this horseman rides in with a sword, also symbolizing war. This one was granted to take peace from the earth. Black, famine. And famine is the natural consequence of war. A time of hyperinflation causes prices to increase so dramatically that the equivalent of a loaf of bread costs an entire day's wage. Amos speaks of a different kind of famine that was to come, a famine of the hearing of the word of God. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
I want to propose a question to you for your consideration. Are we living in a time of the famine of the hearing of the word of God? A famine of food we talked about last week is usually caused by inflation, which itself is caused by an unsubstantiated um, flood of currency into circulation, which devalues the currency that's already in circulation. So can we relate this to a famine of the word of God? Is there so much unsubstantiated spiritual currency flooding the market? That is all of these methods of alternative spirituality, the new age movement on the Jewish side, the Kabbalah. Is there so much of that, that it's devaluing the word of God in people's minds? Now, of course, The word of God cannot truly be devalued, but it can be perceived as having less value from people. These people may be thinking, well, that's just one way to heaven or one way to enlightenment, whatever term they use. Seeing God's word as just one way of many. um, Is that what we're seeing today? Is it a famine of the hearing of the word of God because it's been devalued? It seems like it could be. Now this pale horse, the rider of the pale horse is Thanatos, death. And Hades follows closely behind. One quarter of the world's population was given over to death. And these four horsemen correspond to the first four seals being opened and the judgments coming from that. And that brings us to these fifth and sixth seals. And this is where we'll spend our time this morning. After the fourth seal, we change settings. Okay, so right before verse 9, we're changing the setting from the earth And then in verse 9, the setting moves to heaven. So John is now watching these events from verse 9 through 11 in heaven. And I want to make that very clear. Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This fifth seal is basically the slaughter of the tribulation saints. And history backs up this progression of events. If you look at World War II, you can see similar events unfolding through that time period. And this man rises up to conquer the nations, the rider on the white horse, okay, in history, Hitler. The war breaks out, then famine and disease, And one specific group of people are blamed for the tragedy that followed. That would be the Jews in the Holocaust. They're singled out and killed for their perceived contribution to the tragedy. It will be the same way with believers during the tribulation. They will be the ones who stand out from those who follow the beast. And all the world's problems will be blamed on believers. They'll be singled out and they'll be killed. And look, the way I see it, there's no way 
that we can go through the tribulation. And let me explain. There are a couple of views. One is the pre-tribulation rapture that will be taken out to heaven before the tribulation even begins. And I would hold to this view. And of course, we won't be here during the tribulation if that's the case. But even if we're not raptured before the tribulation, there's no way that we can make it through the tribulation. Because the tribulation saints or believers during the tribulation are hunted and killed. Either way, we're not getting through it. You know, maybe there will be a handful that make it to the end, but that's certainly the exception and not the rule. So I just, I don't see us having to deal with the entirety of the tribulation. That's my perspective. Now, how does John see souls? I don't know. He says, I saw souls under the altar of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. How does he see them? I don't know. I have no clue. But he does. And these souls are those who were killed for their testimony of Jesus Christ. That tells me that they are certainly believers. It appears that these martyrs have, at least in part, been gathered together from the time of the tribulation. Though the church, I believe, will be taken into the presence of Christ, there will still remain millions of copies of the Bible in the world. There will still remain audio teachings of pastors and teachers that maybe these guys will get their hands on. They'll listen to things. They'll see the things in Revelation unfolding, and they will turn to God during the tribulation. Though there's no one to tell them, they still have the written record of God's word. And I think it's a combination of this and just realizing that God is literally exacting his judgment on the world that will turn a multitude And it will spark a great harvest of souls during the tribulation. And I believe that these souls in view in verse 9 seem to reference these tribulation saints. They'll also show back up in chapter 7. And we'll get a more concrete explanation of their identity there. Um, But we'll leave it at that for now. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These souls are calling for the righteous judgment of God to be manifested on the earth. And they're pleading for justice on the basis of God's holy law, not on their own sense of vengeance. And we need to make that clear. It's not a personal vindictive sense that they're speaking from, but God, who is holy and true, must exact vengeance on those who dwell on the earth. You may remember this phrase as having been used in Revelation 3, in verse 10, and we talked about that at some length, this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. This phrase means earth dwellers. It denotes both residence on the earth and identity with the earth. 
These people are at home on the earth where we, as the church, as believers, are just passing through. We're pilgrims on the earth. And this draws a distinction between these earth dwellers and Christians. Now, we see them asking for the, this avenging of their blood. And this is seen throughout Revelation. And I'll point you to a few references here. Revelation 16, 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Revelation 17, 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Revelation 18, 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Revelation 18, 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Revelation 19.2, last one. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So the avenging of the blood of the saints is a common theme, we could say, throughout Revelation. We'll see that play out in later chapters. Verse 11 in chapter 6 this morning, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So we see here a white robe given to each of these souls. How do souls wear robes? I don't know, but here they are. They are given white garments, and God says something interesting to them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. In other words, they were told to hang tight for a little while longer. The vengeance will be exacted but not right now. There's a little time. You have to wait until that comes to pass. There have been periods of very intense persecution against the church throughout history. But I don't think that it's a reach to say that the period of the tribulation will be the worst time of persecution in human history. We looked at the Smyrna era church in chapter two of Revelation, and we know that they persevered through a time of extreme persecution brought on by the Roman Empire. And while that was a terrible time, it's estimated that more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all of the 19 previous centuries combined. You see, it's getting worse. There was a big jump in the 20th century. We are just very fortunate to live in America where that kind of persecution hasn't really reared its head yet. 
But I do think that there is a time when it will. But in other places around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are continuing to suffer for their testimony of Jesus. America is very, very fortunate and very blessed for the position that we've been placed in. But when the tribulation comes, the persecution will be kicked up to a degree that we haven't seen before. If you're committed to Christ, you won't be able to take the mark of the beast, which is a prerequisite for buying and selling. So you won't be able to engage in common commerce. You'll be easily picked out as a Christian because you don't have the mark on your forehead or on your arm. It's easily identifiable. It seems it'll be easy to hunt down and dispose of believers during this time, even to the point where practically all Christ followers could be killed. And in the next chapter, we'll see these tribulation saints again, and that time described as a great multitude, which no one could number, and again is being clothed with white robes. Now, there's a lot of talk about soul sleep, and it's a topic of some debate. You'll find people on both sides. But in this piece of text, it seems that these souls are still very conscious. They're very aware of what's going on around them and on the earth. They seem to recall how they died on earth. They were martyrs. They are asking for vengeance. And they seem to recall that that vengeance is still to be enacted on their behalf. Now, there are also questions as to whether these souls receive an intermediate body um, before the final resurrection because they're given these robes, this clothing. So would a disembodied soul need a robe? Or would they even be able to wear one? And these are questions that I don't have answers to, but I mention them to spark your own curiosity and your own study. So let's go ahead and look at the sixth seal. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Over the 19-year period between 1998 and 2017, earthquakes were the number one cause of death from among natural disasters. They accounted for nearly 750,000 deaths during that 19-year time period. And we know that this, what we're seeing now, is a restrained version of what this earthquake is going to look like. John is saying that there will be a great earthquake when this seal is loosed. Literally a megas seismos, a huge shaking. And this is one of three earthquakes in Revelation. The other two are in Revelation eleven thirteen, and in Revelation 16, 18, and 19. 
There are some who see these three earthquakes as different descriptions of the same event. Okay, so they're, they're trying to combine these timelines of these quakes into one single event. I don't think that's the case. And I think I have good reason for that belief. We remember from either last week or the week before, we looked at the heptatic structure of these judgments. If you look at that, you'll notice that the seventh judgment in each sequence brings about the next series of judgments. It's with the seventh seal that the angels are introduced with the seven trumpets. And it's at the last trumpet that the bowl judgments are introduced. So we have more of a linear chronology. And I don't think that we can smash these all together and call them all the same earthquake. So that's what I think. There are literal earthquakes recorded in scripture. We can't automatically jump to taking this as symbolic. Um, Exodus 19, Exodus 20, 1 Kings 19, Matthew 27, all speak of literal earthquakes. There are also references to both earthquakes and the sun turning dark. Joel 2, verses 2, verses 10, and verses 30 and 31 seem to point to this verse in Revelation. And I'll read that for you real quick. Joel 2, 2 says, A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been seen, nor will there ever be such after them, even for many successive generations. And then verse 10, skipping down, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. And then in verses 30 and 31, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So we see this as a fairly common theme in scripture. And seismos is this word shaking, or what we translate as earthquake. And there's a whole host of different cross-references you can pull out for seismos. And if you're interested after the study this morning, I can give you these to you. I've got some written out, but I'm not going to read through them. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. So I've got some references for you to jot down if you'd like for the sun becoming black as sackcloth. You can always find them on the tape afterwards if you miss them. It's Isaiah 13.10, of course, what we just read, Joel 2.10 and 31, and Matthew 24.29. Likewise, we've got a couple for the moon becoming like blood. That's Isaiah 24.23, and what we just read, Joel 2.31. And I'll let you explore those references if you'd like. You can grab any good 
Bible concordance, and you can track down a lot of these references. Um, also, a good chain reference Bible should have most of these in there as well. Verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Or, you know, if you're from Texas, you might recall how a pecan tree drops its pecans when it's shaken by a mighty wind. It's the same kind of imagery that John is using. Just something they'd be a little more familiar with. This word picture drawn by John is of a multitude of figs coming down at one time. Not just a couple here and there. You know, there's one fig, there's the second but this is a multitude coming down at one time. Isaiah 34, 4 says that all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. And right here, all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. We'll reference that verse again here in just a second. Matthew 24, 29, Jesus says the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Stars, the word in Greek, can be used for more than just what we think of as a star. You know, we think of the great big burning ball of fire as a star. Of course it is, but if we take it that way, we think, well, come on, John. You know that if we get close enough to a star, we'll just all be burnt up to a crisp. There's no way that these thousands of times larger than the earth can come and hit earth and we still have more judgments to eke out, you know. That's true. You know, this word aster for star, it is broader than what we think of as a star. And it encompasses all the celestial bodies, including asteroids. And I would venture to think that this is referring to asteroids, meteors, coming down and hitting the Earth. And it seems that the text is saying that meteors will fall to Earth in great number. Um, It's even possible, not sure, it's possible that these meteors will cause the great shaking that we just talked about. Something to consider. Verse 14, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. How in the world can the sky be rolled up? We may think of this as being impossible, until we come across other scriptures that really drive home this point. Isaiah 34, 4, And the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. Job 9, 8, He alone spreads out the heavens. Psalm 104, 2, Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 40, 22, Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Jeremiah 10, 12, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the word world by his wisdom. 
and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. And Zechariah 12.1, thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So there are many, many scriptures, and there's more references for you here, of God stretching out the heavens, rolling them up like a scroll. And all of these references speak of space as being either rolled out or stretched out like some kind of fabric. This is interesting because modern scientists have come to the same conclusion that space acts like fabric. It's the fabric of space-time, as they call it themselves. There were certain properties of space that Newton couldn't account for with his view of fixed space. But Einstein came along and he introduced flexible space, and he considered space and time to be inextricably linked to one another. The term is space-time. And he viewed space-time as more like a fabric instead of like a flat plane, which turns out to make great illustration of his concept. Can you go to that screenshot? This is a screenshot from a video on YouTube. You can find it. It's called Gravity Visualized. And it's a physics professor who's explaining to what seems like other teachers how this illustration of fabric stretched out kind of represents this space-time continuum. And he puts these masses onto the fabric, and they pull it down in certain places. In this, he's kind of demonstrating how two bodies will be drawn to one another. So he puts them down, and they just by themselves roll towards each other until they make contact. So this is a very apt example, this fabric. God's stretching out space, space-time, inextricably connected. Now, first, grant to me that this is two-dimensional. Okay? It actually is three-dimensional. It has three dimensions. But we're going to grant that a piece of paper laying flat on a desk is two-dimensional. When we roll it up, it gains a dimension. We see that? Two dimensions, three dimensions. So when you roll something up, it has to gain dimensionality. There is a dimension in which that piece of paper laying on the desk is flat. It's flat in the third dimension. So there must also be a dimension in which space is flat or thin. You know, the fourth or fifth dimension, depending on how you look at that. But when it is rolled up, in the end, it will take on another dimension. It will take on dimensionality. And even if none of this made sense, I hope that it sparked your curiosity. Because there's a lot more here that can be uncovered, but we're going to kind of leave that there this morning. Our text says, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And I'll call your attention to Jeremiah 4, 23 and 24. 
I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. And, you know, this is a bit disturbing, that every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. And especially disturbing if you were planning on spending the millennium in Hawaii, because apparently it won't be there. Every island moved out of its place. I say that facetiously, of course. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So this list of different types of people who are hiding in the caves, that's pretty much everybody. Um, We see this is all of the political leaders, the CEOs of multinational corporations, the richest men in the world, the kings, the presidents, and the physically strong men. They're all seeking shelter in the caves along with the slaves and the free men. That incorporates pretty much everyone. This event is recorded throughout Scripture, and I'll let you search out those references to it. Um, I know there's some in, I believe it's Zechariah, definitely Isaiah. But the point is, all of these mighty men on the earth are cowering. They're hiding from the wrath of God. But they're so stubborn, look, they don't turn to God. They turn away from him. They hide in the caves, and they actually turn to the rocks for salvation, or what they think of as salvation. Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They acknowledge that God is behind all of this, but they won't turn to him. Extremely stubborn. And this is interesting too. They say the wrath of the lamb. How many times have you driven by a house that had a little black and red sign that said, beware of lamb? Probably not very many. I'd be surprised if you did. Because lambs are not seen as being full of wrath. Maybe you've seen a beware of dog sign. Dogs are a little scarier than a lamb. But we have the wrath of the lamb here. And what do we do with this? You know, Jesus is pictured throughout scripture as a lamb. And I I want you to see something that could come off as challenging at first, but bear with me. Revelation 13.8 describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This means that Jesus as the lamb preceded the actual creation of lambs on the earth. Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
So God must have created lambs as a representation of Christ. And there is some very obvious symbolism present in the Levitical sacrifices that involve lambs. But if that's for another day, we're not going to get too deep into that. The lamb was created to represent Jesus. It's not like the Holy Spirit searched around creation, said, oh, where is a good representation of the Son? That one will do all right. That's, that's a lamb. There was no searching going on. The lamb was created with this picture in mind. And that's interesting to consider because we don't think of a lamb as having wrath. But a lamb is a picture of Christ. The love and the mercy of Christ must be taken with his justice and his holiness. One must not be viewed as outweighing the other. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, I want to zoom out. We've come to the end of chapter 6. Let's look back at it as a whole. There seems to be a progression in intensity through these judgments throughout all of chapter 6. God begins with the natural consequences of man's sin. Man rejected Christ, who came in his Father's name. So they are provided a man who comes in his own name, the Antichrist. And they receive him, they welcome him. And with him come war, famine, disease, and death. Now these are all very natural things that we see from time to time in the world that we live in. But the scene changes to heaven during the fifth seal, and John sees the souls of these martyrs crying out for justice. And when the focus pans back to the earth in verse 12, John sees these supernatural disturbances that befall the earth. And it seems that God has, for lack of a better term, kicked it up a notch, turned the judgment up. It seems though, that God is still being patient with mankind. He's still demonstrating his heart of long-suffering towards mankind. And he seems to begin this period of tribulation by gently shaking what is remaining of mankind. And of course, gently, I use that term in comparison to the judgments that are coming but it will certainly be a trying time in its own right. But there will be those who won't turn to him even after they see the beginning of fulfillments of prophecy. There will be those who are stubborn. You see, we can still rationalize the war. We can still rationalize that in our minds. And that's our natural tendency. And the natural consequences of war, we know, is famine and disease. That still makes sense to us. Man will still be able to explain away these phenomena. But 
when the sun becomes black, when the moon turns blood red, when the meteors begin to bombard earth and the sky is rolled up, when the mountains and the islands are moved out of their place, it gets really tough to keep rationalizing. We see all of those things happening. There's not a very good explanation for that. God turns it up bit by bit. And I believe that he's demonstrating still his patience with man. We serve a loving God, but his justice must come to pass just as well. Nahum 1, 5 and 6 reads, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Who can stand before his indignation? And the mighty men of earth cry, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's not a challenge, by the way. You, you don't want to try to stand. Um, it's more like a statement that no one can stand. Who is able to stand? I'm so thankful that those born into the body of Christ are not appointed to his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And salvation means rescue or safety through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And that's great news. You know, we're here studying wrath this morning, but we can sleep well. We can be assured that we are not appointed to this wrath if we are in Christ. The wrath that was stored up for your sin has already been poured out on Christ on the cross. And if that payment has been accounted to your account, it does not need to be paid again. We are not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation. The sin debt has been paid in full. Who is able to stand his wrath? Where are you standing in respect to his wrath? Has his wrath already been settled on your account? Or is there still something left to pay? The answer to that question determines eternity. If you can answer this morning, I'm in Christ. I've been born again. I've asked Jesus to come into my life and to my heart as Lord and Savior. You're not appointed to wrath. You're appointed to salvation. But if you cannot honestly look at yourself and say, I am Christ's, there is still a debt that must be paid. 
Who is able to stand his wrath? Where do you stand in respect to his wrath? Something to consider as you go out of this place this morning. Please don't leave without standing on the right side of his wrath. You know, if we can get out of here before this time of tribulation begins, I'm all for that. And that's what I think will happen. But there are some passages that call to question whether everybody's getting out or just some. Look at uh, Matthew 10, the parable of the, sorry, Matthew 25, parable of the 10 virgins. They were all invited to the feast, the wedding feast. But there were only a few who were prepared. They had their wicks trimmed and their lamps full of oil. They were prepared to go to that feast whenever the bridegroom showed up. They were taken away immediately. The others who were still invited to the feast, they had to stay. And it's a little bit wishy-washy what happened to them after that. I say this to just say, don't live on the edge. If we're getting out of here, I'm going. I'm not tiptoeing at the edge. You know, you go to the Grand Canyon, you can enjoy the view from a few feet back from the edge. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to get right up on the edge, look straight down on a cliff. Don't live on the edge. Be fully committed. Give Christ your whole entire life, not just pieces and sections of it. Jesus, I'll give you my life for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but the rest is mine. I need to do with that other things. Is that really how we're called to live? Where do you stand? Pray about it this week. Consider it. And pray with me as we close our study this morning.